Here's to the finest crew in Starfleet. Engage. Welcome to the greatest generation, Deep Space Nine. It's a Star Trek podcast by a couple of guys who are a little bit embarrassed to have a Star Trek podcast. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. Ben, I'm I'm in my regular studio space, but you, you're doing a little bit of an away game, right? I am, yeah. I'm actually in my parents' basement, where all Star Trek podcasts rightly should be cast yeah. from. <laughs> the spiritual home of the greatest generation, really. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm, I'm here in the Bay Area. I had some, some work, and uh, the trip for work happened to kind of coincide with proximity to my father's 75th birthday. So we're going to go out to dinner tonight to, uh, to celebrate that. Well, that's great. Happy birthday. Uh, Ben's dad. I don't know if I can say his name. Can I say happy birthday, Sam? <laughs> yeah, you can say happy birthday, Sam. Happy birthday, Sam. One of the greats. One of the greatest. Uh, do you have like a special family restaurant that you go to for occasions? I know you've said a few times that uh, that your parents-in-law have have like their regular spot, but do your parents have a regular spot? They don't really. I'd say that to the extent that we do... It would be Chez Panisse, which is a legendary restaurant here in the Bay Area. Um, but that makes it sound like we have lots of money, which we don't. <laughs> uh, is, that's been like a, a place that is nice to go to on the very rare occasion that we are going to splash out for somebody's birthday. Sure. But uh, I have, I've, I've probably not been there in 10 or 20 years. I mean, Looks I, like it's still there. Yeah, it's, uh, it's going strong. I, I'm very excited to return to it because it's always changing and it's an amazing place. 75 is a big deal. Yeah. Dad's still working though, huh? Still grinding away. He ever talk about retirement? Like, do you ever wish retirement for him? What's What's that about? Why is he still working? I feel like... I mean, my dad is a real... is a is a worker. Like, when he goes on vacation, he finds projects often messy and uh, stressful and physically demanding projects to do uh, <laughs> to occupy himself. And I do have like some fears that a like that retirement is not necessarily going to be a net good for him. I also don't think that like working for the rest of his life is going to be good for him. So right. I, I don't have like a strong recommendation either way when it comes up in conversation, but it's something that he has been thinking about lately. And I found uh, he works at the airport in San Francisco. And I found a uh, a piece of paper on my parents' counter this morning that had very specific rules about what happens with your badge your like employee badge when you stop working at the airport oh so <laughs> i uh, i don't know if that means anything but uh yeah i guess uh, it makes sense that they would have strong feelings about what you do with your employee badge when you work at an airport right but uh it was it was real intense it was like if you don't turn it in within three days you will not be allowed to come back to the airport for any reason <laughs> that seems fair yeah <laughs> really uh Airports in this country grow have grown into some of the more hardened locations on Earth, I think. <laughs> yeah. You got to keep those badges safe. Yeah. They need those stinking badges. 
Do you think, uh, like, this desire to work by your dad, this is turning into a little bit of a therapy session. <laughs> like, do you, uh, do you see that in yourself as something that you, uh, you, you fight against? I don't. I think that I'm, to the extent that this is possible, like, a little bit have a war between my parents raging in my, in my psyche at all times. Yeah. My dad's kind of a messy guy, and my mom is a very neat and tidy person. And I am like this weird mix where I like let the mess accumulate and then flip out and purge and get everything back to neat and tidy and then rinse and repeat. You'd, <laughs> and, uh, uh, you'd say your mom is more Paula Abdul and your dad is more DJ Scat Cat. I guess so, yeah. I never thought of it that way. My mom will be so excited to hear herself compared to Paula Abdul. Just as excited as you sound, I'm sure. <laughs> it will be interesting to see what goes down when that retirement does pop off, because I'm sure that it's probably happening sooner than later. Yeah, you start seeing uh, memos about badge hygiene. You know it's probably coming. Yeah. I wonder what happens when people... like. In the 24th century, everybody that works is working because they want to. But, do, I mean, do do workaholics exist when it's not about money or... I mean, I guess... I mean, Scotty famously got a Winnebago shuttle and just went off to live on some <laughs> tropical planet. Like, I, yeah. think, I think the idea of retirement exists in the abstract, if not... Well, the Scotty always wanted to see Montana. Sure. <laughs> the last square job that you had we both had square jobs once upon a time uh do you remember that last day that you had like packing up your shit and leaving and how that felt because <laughs> well, the do. only the only square job i ever had i had for about nine months and i was fired over the phone while i was at a funeral so oh geez <laughs> yeah That's so nice. uh yeah, I don't have I don't have strong positive associations with having gainful employment. Right, right, and uh, yeah, I don't feel real great about how I left my last job either. But I think it was mutually beneficial. A is that because you went around the third floor and left upper deckers in every single toilet? What's what's that called? Like a a loving separation? Oh, a, a conscious uncoupling. Yeah, <laughs> we had a conscious uncoupling. <laughs> it became more and more clear that I was not, uh, I, I did not have the temperament, uh, like after, it took me 12 years in the same workplace <laughs> to get to this point. So it wasn't like I was a shit bag for 12 years, but yeah, I think you finally, you wake up to the idea that uh, a workplace isn't for you and that's the time to go. And maybe, maybe your dad just hasn't gotten there yet. When I got that phone call, they, they, the lady said, I'm calling to tell you that your position at our company has been eliminated. <laughs> and I said, what does that mean? And she said, well, it means that you don't have a position because the position has been el eliminated. And I said, all right, but does that mean I work there or that I don't work there? God, that is just some chicken shit HR speak, right? God, give me a fucking break. Yeah, like the uh, boy, the way the way the HR department at that at that company communicated to employees was like either extremely condescending or entirely without 
the courage of its convictions, <laughs> like one or the other. And uh, about four months after I left, they had a big uh, sexual harassment scandal with somebody in another department. So go figure. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Well, uh, as ever, everyone already knows this HR department's on on your side. No, they're there to protect the company. Yeah. Do you want to uh, slip into something a little bit more Star Trek, Adam? Oh, yeah. I think I would like that very much. <laughs> let's, uh, let's pivot into a season two episode, episode 10. It's called Sanctuary. Do you realize how incredible this is? <laughs> no. Of course you don't. This episode starts with uh, Kira getting in trouble for kind of slipping at work. She's getting in trouble from Cisco because she is kind of too focused on trying to personally save all of Bajor from all of its problems and not focused enough on like what her actual job is. What would you say you do here? I mean, you see this a lot in a professional environment. This is... Uh this is friendship masquerading as professional counseling. Like this is a, <laughs> this is Cisco showing concern for a coworker because uh, he's noticed. Like he's noticed she's slipping, and it also conveys a kind of intimacy between them that we haven't seen before because uh, they're finishing each other's sandwiches. Yes, <laughs> they're finishing each other's sandwiches in this scene uh, on the regular, and that's a good uh, that's a good shorthand for for characters growing close, right? It is a good shorthand for characters growing close. And, and I think that this sort of feels like a maybe a turning point for Kira and for her relationship with Cisco. Like, I think that she seems more comfortable in her role. You know, like in a weird way, her kind of slipping and not turning in work on time is a sign of comfort. You know, like I, I'll get this done when I get it done. Is a sign of confidence, you know? Yeah, and I think we've always viewed Cisco's management style as as fairly inflexible. Like mm-hmm. I th- I'm I'm struggling to think of a specific instance where like that would support that argument in any way. But he's very like thoughtful in how he manages people and he manages everyone a little bit differently. And the way he manages Kira in this way is like he he understands her challenges and not completing her tasks on time. And it's not the end of the world that she doesn't. He's also kind of busting her chops in a loving way. Like, yeah, the the like, yeah, your voice carries. I know you've been on the phone all day with the Ministry of Agriculture or whatever. Like, <laughs> I guess in the 24th century future, they don't install those white noise machines in in their open concept office environment in ops. Yeah. Those things really knock down the uh, the crosstalk noise that you get in an office environment. I've always, wa- like, I don't want to work in an office ever again, but if I do, I want my own office. I, I think that is the cost of doing business with me if you're ever going to hire me on a full-time basis. Yeah, that's going to be a part, of, a part of my salary requirements is private office with lockable, opaque door. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't want to get caught jacking it at work, Adam. Yeah, I, uh, I mean, it's look, uh, it's going to take an office, it's going to take an opaque door, it's going to have to take fuck you money to get me off of this microphone, too. <laughs> so... 
you know, no rest for the wicked. Kira is just finishing up getting chewed out by Cisco when she's told that Quark uh, needs her attention very urgently. Perfect. And she heads down to the bar where a Bajoran is playing the version of the theme song for solo flute. <laughs> I didn't. I never. I didn't even think of the possibility that the theme song for Deep Space Nine might be an orchestral Bajoran tune. Yeah, I mean, I guess it makes sense that it might be. It's very, like, smooth jazzy, you know? Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's like, uh, it's it's the uh, Yanni at the Acropolis version of the theme song. John Tesh would be too loud and, and rock and roll for this, <laughs> for this interpretation of the theme song. And... Uh, you know, for that reason and that reason alone, Quark is very irritated by the fact that it's going down. I don't quite know how how acts get booked at Quark's bar, but this seems to have taken him by surprise, and uh, he is not pleased that the that the music isn't very lively. Yeah, because everyone's attention is wrapped on Varani and his weird electro horn. Like, no one's gambling, no one's hardly drinking. Uh, Morn has a lady friend who's, like, draped over him. Yeah. She wants that hammer bin. Yeah, she heard about the hammer. It, I was a little bit surprised that it was a, a Federation-clothed person. Like, like Morn can pull Federation. <laughs> like, that's surprising to me. I don't know why I thought, I thought he would be more, he'd be too exotic for them. I guess this reputation has gotten around. A swamp mule hung like a swamp mule. I mean, yeah, I think he's, you know, he's he's probably a good listener. <laughs> he's he's packing a hammer. I mean, what lady wouldn't want want that? It's a hell of a combination. Yeah. The uh I mean, Dax is definitely curious anyways, right? Yeah. And yeah, she, I guess and, that's And she's a federation. It's true. Who's she talking to? She's putting it out in the street, Ben. Yeah, yeah. I wonder, like, would Dax, if Dax had showed up in this scene, would she have been super jealous of this lady that's uh, that's got Morn wrapped around her little finger? Oh boy, I wish we saw that. <laughs> that would be fun. Yeah. Well, we don't see that, but we do see Kira have a conversation with the flautist in question, and uh, he's like a pretty chill dude. He's like, oh yeah, you want less concert hall, more music hall? Like, like uh, he gets it. He knows He knows how the lat gets stacked. He also makes a comment about, uh, he's like, what are you doing about that group of artists and musicians on Bajor? I think it's super important that we, like we've reclaimed our absent architectural heritage, uh, <laughs> we must also reclaim our artistic heritage, which... Uh, up to now has never been referred to other than, like, really abstractly. Like, we're told time and time again Bajorans are great artists. Yeah. <laughs> and great architects and great great creative minds. But, uh, again, poor Varani. Like, he's, he's, a, he's a talented horn player, but, like, one horn player does not make an artist community. It is so weird. Like, there are so few times in the history of Star Trek when we have been presented with a culture as being great at a kind of creative work and then seen that creative work and actually had that 
sentiment payoff. Like, I think that's the hardest part of creating a world, though. Like, I, I totally get it. Like, in order to to have it be viable and true, you have to demonstrate its truth. And to demonstrate the truth of something's greatness requires that proof. And this show is incapable of making Varani a brilliant, smooth jazz player. Like, they're just not going to put in the work to do that. Right. I mean, I would say that the only, like, analogous situation where the art was actually really impressive was that dolphin that that kid carved. <laughs> That's, I think, God, that is the best art piece the show has ever created. I mean, besides a uh, horse playing saxophone... I think that's it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think they can claim all the credit for a horse playing saxophone. What are you doing now? Back up in ops, Kira, Kira is uh, just showing up from... Uh, making all the peace down at the at the bar when an unknown and failing starship comes through the wormhole. And uh, this thing is, is really on its last legs. O'Brien uh, pulls an old school move and beams them, uh, these aliens, off of their busted up ship right before it explodes. And they like, uh, they materialize on the pad and they're like, they're, they're kind of peasants, right? They've got... They've got peasant clothes. Yeah, they have peasant clothes and uh, the complexion of the before picture in a proactive ad. Yeah, this is a, an alien race that has not discovered moisturizer. <laughs> yeah, not great. I mean, it, I guess they're, they're permanently middle school, right? They, they achieved warp travel, but they did not figure out how to take care of their skin. <laughs> they, they had yet to discover peroxide. Their faces are the part of a house in... House Hunters Renovation Edition that is definitely going to be scraped and repainted. They've got popcorn ceiling faces. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's great for acoustics, but uh, not not so easy on the eyes. I, I just have a general question. The, the episode answers this specific to these aliens, uh, but it would seem that most people who travel through the wormhole do so by accident. <laughs> these people we come to find out have been searching for such a wormhole and have a name for it and everything but yeah it they seems have strange a Bajoran analogous legend about it even yeah it seems strange that uh that so many people who come through seem so shocked to to be there yeah you'd think that word would have gotten out right you know what uh the headcanon is for me is like once you go through uh you don't want to go back like how how would news of that proliferate through the Gamma Quadrant if not for return trips from people, uh, you know, telling the tale? It seems like many of them yeah. might be staying, right? Well, those uh, those super kinked out guys with the muscly faces that Quark was dealing with came through and went back, right? And th I mean, yeah, like this is another episode where like the Dominion gets mentioned and there's like a music cue and everybody stops and turns to the camera, right? clear that the dominion is scary and bad but we don't really know anything else about it at this point and it kind of seems like the writers probably haven't made that many 
firm decisions about what the Dominion is going to be yet. Yeah, it, it feels that way. What we do know is these guys are the Screans, and uh, and they look like uh, they look like pioneer people. Like like the women have pioneer hair, that severe like sloping upward bangs situation <laughs> and then the dudes yeah. all have do-rags like literal do-rags they put the uh they put the headband in and they and they push it all the way to the back of their head and then they push it forward again yeah it's a look <laughs> it's a real look and they are not easy to talk to these aliens like they uh they materialize on the pad and they are speaking an alien language that the that the computer just does not know what to do with and that doesn't wind up being a problem for that long. It's like, it's it's kind of, it's almost like a, a conflict that they lost the conviction of, you know? They were just like, ah, fuck, I don't, I don't feel like running down this storyline. Forget it. The, the computer figures it out at this point, you know, I'll, in act two. I'll argue something different. I wish this happened every time with every alien race. Like, you, you get the, you get the sense that the computer is is processing this language over time until uh, the lead Screen, whose name is uh, Hanik, is finally able to speak uh, intelligibly. And that would, that would make sense. Like, that would add up. But I feel like it's either got to be one or the other, right? I agree. Yeah. Yeah. I wish, I wish this were canonical every time. It would be satisfying yeah. than... It would be more satisfying than how we had it here, which is, which is unique. Um, one of the Screens is played by uh, a real that guy, Leland Orser, perhaps most famous for having the knife strap on in, uh, in seven. Oh yeah. <laughs> now um, I know who that guy is. <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, not really the thing you want to be known for <laughs> necessarily, but, uh, yeah, I mean, he's been in a bunch of stuff, and this is a very small role for him. His character really doesn't do much, but he's uh, he was uh, immediately recognizable to me. And the younger of the Screens is played by Andrew Koenig, who is Walter Koenig's son, or was, and uh, sadly passed away from suicide uh, about eight years ago. Oh, no. Yeah, it was... Uh, I think he was kind of a friend to the podcast industry too, and hmm. it's it's really tragic to think that uh, that he was in that kind of pain. I don't really know much about it. I just uh, I I happened to click into his uh, his IMDb and and see that uh, there was a you know a born and a died. Sure. And, uh, yeah, he was he was only forty one when he passed away. Really sad. Strap on knife guy is such a bracing image that like if you're an actor of the type that we've described before that guy actor wait these are not the same dude by the way i know i know that i'm I'm going back to the first the first guy the like i love the idea that you can be a middling actor and yet still have a credit that everyone knows Everyone knows right. who that is if you go to see movies. And that is yeah. a particular kind of fame, I think, that is amazing. Yeah, you really have to, like, he must have had a lot of conversations with his management when he decided to take that role. Like, like this for sure will be, <laughs> <laughs> like, we know that, like, this movie stars Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman. Probably a lot of people are going to see it. And your character is going to be very sad when we meet him because <laughs> <laughs> he will... <laughs> yeah, Jesus. 
Yeah. Uh, a brave, a brave thing as an actor to take a role like that. I think you got to take it. Like I, I agree with the the instinct to take that role. Because, like, you see him at the con, and he's got the banner in back of him. He's strap-on yeah. knife dildo guy. Like, that's, <laughs> you know exactly who he is. You, you stop at his booth, you get the autograph, and you move on. Like, that, <laughs> he, he, he's got to be con-famous. <laughs> that's a con-famous role. Yeah. Uh, that could pay the bills for the rest of your life. They do a thing with the screens. Is there a seven con? <laughs> I bet you meet a specific type of person at Seven Con. Yeah. Well, I, I bet you. I bet you meet seven different kinds of people. You meet gluttons. Uh, you meet greedy boo. people. <laughs> Tell you one thing about Seven Con, Ben. You do not want to participate in the room block buy at the hotel. Like, I'm yeah. going to stay somewhere different. <laughs> yeah the the discount is tempting but <laughs> what's the what's the sin that that uh has you resisting the value of a discount i just don't want to i just don't want to be caught in the hot tub late at night with a, a wrathful person <laughs> no shit <laughs> yeah was that bubble you or was that the tub john doe has the upper hand they do a thing uh in this episode ben that uh i hope we get to see more of i think they're they're contextualizing the space of Deep Space Nine in a more interesting way. We actually take a trip on the elevator uh, down from Ops into the promenade, and I don't remember seeing this transit depicted before in this way. They decide that they're going to go, unfortunately, not to the dermatology clinic, but to the infirmary. <laughs> Bashir is like, I, I, I do not have enough dermal regenerators for this project. I'm going to write you guys a referral to a specialist, because this is not really my area. <laughs> Perhaps you'd like... Analgesic cream. I think I've always had the sense that the kind of ring that you see right below the 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 con tower when they show the exterior of the station is where the promenade is, yeah. just based on the shape of the windows. But yeah. this kind of this is kind of like there to confirm that as an idea. I like it. I like that there. We had so many questions uh, for the first season and a half about how this space was used, and I, right. I feel like they're uh, they're doling that out a little better, and I like it. Yeah, I'm sure if I'd like, you know, I think I think by the time this show was out, I was maybe a little too old to like go seek out the the book at the library that has the detailed schematic of yeah. the space station. Yeah. And now I regret that, you know. I'm going to turn to camera right now and address the the viewers just to say that I know you're hearing us referring to uh schematics we don't have. That does not mean that we want them. <laughs> so thank you for your attempted kindness we can do without yeah i mean that said you and i were both in a used furniture store a f- couple weeks ago with our wives and we both had to be talked out of buying a large format schematic of the enterprise d that was hanging on the wall in there that thing was awesome though yeah it was <laughs> I look, I know I know our wives thought it was a bit like something we were gonna do at them. I legit yeah. wanted that. I still might go back too. for it. Yeah. I think they'd ship cool. that to you, Ben. Yeah. It was uh it was one of those ones where it's like a really detailed uh 
drawing with full color, but then like sections of the ship are are cut out. Yeah. So you see them in in cross section. Fucking love those. So they're getting walked through the promenade uh, on their way to their quarters, where another interesting architectural thing happens. Ben, they get they get shown to their quarters, and this might be a time code thing. Uh, you or a viewer might want to check out, but around twelve forty, you sort of get a high wide shot of the space. It looks like there's a two stall bathroom in the back corner. Oh, really? Like this seemed like the nicest quarters that we've seen yeah. so far. Yeah, I, I see the thing you are referring to as potentially a bathroom. Like what else could it be? With the diamonds yeah. on the uh, on the walls, yeah. Instead of like maybe the moon has turned into the diamond, like the like the moon <laughs> logo for uh, outhouse has changed. Yeah. Well, they didn't want people to get the wrong idea that it was only a place to discard of uh, feminine hygiene products. Sure, you can do other things in there too. Yeah, <laughs> they. Uh, uh, you know what? They're they're kind of giving them the Riker treatment too, like showing them the, to their quarters. The first thing they do is show them the replicator. Let's see if the Braves are on. How do you cut on this TV? Where they uh, they replicate a, a tray full of land Jaegers. They're like, I yeah. bet you guys are hungry. Why don't you feast on this? Here's some of our finest dried meat. I feel like that's pretty safe for uh, for a person of a different culture. Mm, it's really very good. I don't know. Like, what else do you do you order out of the thing? Not gonna, well, you're not gonna, we don't know if they're like pork enthusiasts or not, so that could be that could be an issue. Like once the not once the universal is, translator kicks, it, they're like, "This is swine, fuck you." Not everyone is space Jewish, Ben. <laughs> it's just an issue I've uh, become a lot more sensitive to <laughs> lately. Right? Yeah, the food goes over pretty well, and this is when the universal translator starts to kind of pick up the thread of their language. Sulak, need estasa. Wait, did you hear that? I think she said need. And we come to understand that these uh, Screens are just the first trickle of what will be a flood. Like, they are galactic refugees, and they are fleeing from the Dominion... The Dominion invading the planet that they were enslaved on provided a enough chaos for them to slip three million <laughs> out the door. And there's like a flotilla of Screen ships on the other side of the wormhole. And uh, they are really eager to start bringing them uh, through and, and uh, getting them set up. And, uh, and so like this presents like a whole new, a whole new challenge. Like, Fresh from the linguistic challenge, there's like the challenge of what do we do with these three million people that need a new place to live? And they have a McLaughlin group. Issue one. Ben, could I just hop in here real quick just to say, you know, sort of by design, a diversion has to be bigger than the thing that escapes it. Yeah. What is the diversion that is bigger than three million people <laughs> in ships? Like that has got to be a shit show they're escaping from. Hey, wait, wait a second. Weren't there a bunch of Scrian slaves around here at some point? Where did those guys go? Like a bunch. <laughs> hey, are you missing your Scrian slave? So am I. <laughs> Look at how wrinkled my clothes are. This fucking sucks. I mean, I will say that the snow drifts of skin flakes not being around is kind of nice. I'm having to run the dust mop around a lot less than I used to. 
But uh, yeah, the uh, so they have this McLaughlin group, and it starts a little awkward because <laughs> Hanique is like not used to her male counterparts being involved in decision making. Screen men don't involve themselves in situations like this. And she's also weirded out by Cisco being involved in decision making. Like they come from a staunchly misandrist culture, and she says several things to like Chief O'Brien in particular that. Uh, really betray how little how little respect she really has for men which is which is fun i th- i feel like they they had ideas like this a couple of times on tng but they weren't as subtly executed like she, you know the way she just kind of like condescendingly goes like yeah men they're just always like getting in fights and and uh you know they're just so emotional it's one of their one of the main things about them is how emotional they are is <laughs> It's like it's more fun and better done than uh, than TNG would have done it. I think I really like that part too. What I didn't like here and in a few other areas is the way the show takes us to Exposition University. In that, there's a I will say like first of all, like I I love Star Trek. I feel like I need to say that every time I <laughs> criticize how a show does things fundamentally, but more often than not, the way a show. Uh, gives information to the viewer is by doing that pattern of like a character saying, we're looking for a place called Quintana. And then a character goes, Quintana? And then the original character goes, yes, Quintana. And then defines what that is. There was a... (laughs) You know, the Hispanic bowler from The Big Lebowski. Fucking Quintana. That creep can roll, man. Nobody fucks with him. You said it, man. Picard famously did this for a a lot of episodes in TNG early on, and it's such a pattern that I wish they didn't do. Like, there are better and more interesting ways to do it, and and more, like, emotionally interesting ways, too. Like, if they were like, well, let us, uh, you know, like... A lot of people come through this wormhole and don't realize that they're as far from where they started as they are. Let us like give you a little, uh, li- little idea of uh, like what part of the galaxy you've come out in. First up, here is the local inhabited planet. And they throw Bajor up on the screen, and they're all like, "What?" <laughs> <laughs> that would have been fun, right? You know? Right, right. But uh, yeah, the idea is that the Screens have been have been you know prophesied to find this legendary planet called Quintana that is their their homeland that they're you know going to go to and settle and that's the promised land for them it's in keeping with their pioneer spirit and and look yeah like, this is very this is very wagon trainy what's happening here yeah so so like a lot goes into motion like the the other screens are contacted and invited through the wormhole and many of them are invited onto the station like there's too many to to let all of them come to the station but like a shit ton of them come to the station and they really got like central casting for like peasant looking people like they kind of they all have like past faces you know yeah yeah they're they're visiting ds9 and chiefs <laughs> <laughs> Ben, to the degree there's a B story, uh, what we get is the return of Jake Sisko and his buddy Nog. Yeah. 
and uh, Nag is sort of dressed like Carmen Miranda here <laughs> in a fun way. Like they really gave him some jaunty uh, colors and patterns. Yeah, they really did. He's a real chip off the old cork block. It introduces some conflict between the kids because while uh, Hanik is off trying to find their new home world, uh, it's, it's the kids that came over with Hanik that are intermingling with the kids on DS9, specifically Jake and Nog. And Nog is not feeling this. He's, uh, he's sort of nimbying around the station about, about this growing population uh, that's there. And uh, he's ready to tease them. Yeah. The, it's clear that the Screans have uh, both been through some fairly desperate times, but maybe also have some like different cultural norms. Mm-hmm. So like one thing that happens is Jake and Nog are like sitting in their traditional dangling over the promenade spot and they see the uh the young uh Screen that came in the first batch uh like stealing food off of a plate in the cafe after somebody has left. And uh They're kinda hobo shaming is like, him. Yeah, yeah. Nog is like totally disgusted by this and and uh, uh like has a pretty fun performance calling him an idiot. <laughs> I feel like there was an extra rail there in the season before or a couple episodes ago. They are they're dangling their legs off the second deck of the promenade and there's nothing in between them and a 20-foot fall. Yeah. Do you remember the, there being uh, another pipe there? I kind of do. I've, yeah, weren't they, they they would like lean lean They put their arms on it. it. Yeah. Yeah. Weird. Yeah, that's weird. Maybe uh Maybe when Melora came aboard, like they didn't just walk back the, uh, they didn't just retrofit the station for ADA compliance. They also like removed a lot of safety features. <laughs> There's probably no other place to drop this besides here because there are a few interactions between Jake and Nog and these uh, and these screens that don't go well. But I think story wise, like they're being. They're being very intentional with the introduction of conflict between Jake and Nog and the Screens in a way that I think without it changes the feeling of the ending. And so when we get to the ending, I'm going to revisit this this moment. But I think this is this is crucial to how the Screens are portrayed and how the Bajorans are portrayed later. I agree. One thing I wanted to bring up before we get too far past this scene was that the the like intro of the scene is that Jake and Nog are talking about how Jake went on a date with a Dabo girl? <laughs> Hell yeah, Jake. Get it. How old is Jake supposed to be? He looks super young to me. Yeah. Is he 16 or is he 18? Well, here's the thing. Like, we might Are Dabo girls 18 and up? Like, what's what are the what are the employment regulations looking like here on Deep Space 9? I kind of want to solve for the variable in not guessing what Jake's age is, but maybe instead guessing what the lowest age of a Dabo girl could be. And I'm going to guess like <laughs> like mid 20s. Right. Yeah. So, if don't... we're starting from there, like even if Jake is 16 or 18, that's Good job, Jake. Really punching above his his weight class there. Really, like, what is that, like a July-September relationship? <laughs> is that what those are called? Yeah, I think that's what that's called, Adam. <laughs> to be quite honest about it, I was in a pale. A fucking pale. Mr. Bucket, I have to revert back to my living state. I don't use the bucket anymore. One other thing that's happening is sort of a blossoming 
quote-unquote romance between Varani and Hanik because Hanik uh, drops into, like, this, the overcrowded station has produced uh, sort of a riot of activity in Quark's bar. A lot of these uh, screens are hanging out there, and one of them is Hanik. Quark is not pleased by this because they're poor and therefore not not really contributing to the bottom line. He's selling a shit ton of PBR and cans for, for $3 <laughs> a can when he wants to be pushing the top shelf liquor. And they're not even tipping. And uh, Hanik is having like a bunko meeting with a couple of, of her her compatriots. And they're sort of like throwing the leadership crown at her. They're like, you got us here. Why don't you take us the rest of the way home? I'll do the best I can. Which is not really, I think, the right way to handle this story problem like she comes on on the station saying like i'm just a simple farmer and not the leader of my people for that you'll need to talk to somebody else she refers everyone to the screen help desk when they have questions <laughs> yeah but then the the screen olds are just like hey why don't you be the leader like <laughs> power is never thrust on people like that i think i honestly think like the more interesting thing and maybe it was just a efficiency issue would have been if she kind of claimed leadership like i found this and now i will lead our people to Quintana and like from humble beginnings come great things kind of kind of a character she never vedic wins it yeah right yeah i agree uh another thing that happens here is uh varani kicks it to hanik and like gives her a mixtape he's like uh Hey, I, I uh, noticed you noticing my smooth jazz standards. Uh, here's, a, here's a couple of my tracks. And then, like, <laughs> like a guy on the street, like, wake, waits to be paid for the CD he handed her. <laughs> yeah, you like hip-hop? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, you like hip-hop, sir. <laughs> and it sort of teases a burgeoning romance that not, doesn't really get paid off. Like, I saw romance here, but I don't know if I was just seeing too much into it. I think that, like, he is, like, that character is written in to the show for a very specific reason, the character of Varani. Yeah. And I think mainly that reason is just to, like, give an opportunity for there to be some exposition surrounding what's going on with Bajor lately, which is not really necessary, you know? It's that 90s TV thing of, we have to assume that somebody is sitting down and watching this as their first episode of this show ever, you know? Well, this is not skipping to the end, but it's teasing the end. Like, I think Varani accomplishes the goal of dropping breadcrumbs about about need on Bajor, because in the very beginning, yeah. he's like, look, uh, Bajor needs, you know, to reclaim their heritage. They need to establish these places where artists can grow and flourish we need to rebuild from what the Cardassians have done to us and you know in the end a major reason why Bajor does not accept the idea their uh, their asylum request is is the lifeboat problem like we have we have our own needs and I think Varani has to tease this throughout so it's not just a surprise at the end when the Bajorans push back on the idea of them colonizing. Yeah. But it's really low-key. It's, it's subtle. It's, it's weirdly subtle. So back to the kids, they are straight up fighting with each other. Like, it's the sort of high school hazing that involves, like, stink bombs and wedgies. And, uh, and Quark ends up, like, 
saving Nog's ass a couple of times. It, <laughs> yeah. He actually like Not- Teen Wolf growls to Mac, you know, in defensive Nog, like in a promenade hallway, in a way yeah, that's kind of fun. Like, yeah, like I think he has to go down and bail Nog out of Odo's office by saying like this is not going to happen again and then like and then like the next time Nog sees those kids it turns into a like a 1950s rumble. Yeah. And uh and uh Quark is the one to break it up but he yeah, he's like hissing <laughs> they're both I have, have Ferengi's hissed like this it's cuz it's like it's very um it's a very staccato hiss. They both keep going like. <laughs> I can see that screens don't bother to teach their children manners. I like that we're getting a library of Ferengi sounds. <laughs> and I don't mean like for the show. I just mean like canonically. It's fun. It's fun to see them get colored in a little more. Yeah. So with the power that has been thrust upon her. Hanik comes to Kira and uh, she's like, hey, great news. Your planet is actually Quintana, uh, the planet we've we've been looking for. So we'll be moving in shortly. And it's like Kira eyes to commercial. And when we come back, the provisional government have sent sent up a monk and a functionary to explain to <laughs> explain to the Screens that that is not necessarily what Bajor had in mind. I got to tell you, Ben, like whenever whenever a decision is, is out of your hands and decided by someone else and that someone else begins their answer with, we've thought long and hard about it, that answer is normally <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, this decision was not hard to make. <laughs> we don't know you. We don't trust you. Uh, we're trying to make Bajor great again, and we have decided to build the wall. Well, here's here's where I think we may come down on opposite ends of the argument here. Like, the idea that the Screens want to emigrate to Bajor, you know, is, is seen by the Screens as a benefit to Bajor. But yeah. the Screens made no effort to... Like, like the essential conflict between emigrators and the places that they wish to emigrate on this show is that like there's no room. There's there's a lack of resources. Uh, you know the laundry list is is fairly long, but like right. like most stories of this kind, neither side makes an attempt to get to know the other side. They don't have like a mixer to like break the ice. They don't have. I mean, the screens don't have, like, a pitch deck about what they will do with the land once it is given to them. And that's what I'm saying. Like, when you're made to make assumptions about the other side, those assumptions are often negative. Which is why, like, uh, spoiler alert, I was on the Bajoran side of this argument. Because they didn't start off on great terms. No one made an attempt to to get to know each other. And with that lack yeah. of information about each other culturally, like, of course they were going to say no. Well, th- it was also a weird request because it seemed to me that the Screens weren't really interested in like being friends with the Bajorans, even. Right. Like they just wanted free land and to and like land that wasn't otherwise occupied. Like they wanted to be isolated amongst themselves, but on Bajor, which is not really that doesn't seem like a good way of 
solving the problem of accommodating three million people that need a home. Yeah. Especially in the context of, hey, we found a planet that is perfect for you guys. <laughs> like, there are apparently enough planets that they've, they're like, okay, well, we found like an empty planet that's got arable land and uh, it's yours if you guys want it. And they're like, no, we actually want the one that is already spoken for. <laughs> yeah, and that's not a good look for them. Like, no one wants to go to Draylon 2. It's not because it sounds like a prescription inhaler. It's just because they'd <laughs> rather be on Bajor. And that's not a good look for the Screans, I don't think, either. Yeah. They are they're hostile to the idea of any other place but Bajor. And it's an interesting story to have portrayed them in a more sympathetic manner. But I could, it, it was very hard for me to muster sympathy when things like Tumac big-dogging Jake at the Replimat happen. Like... And that's right. and this goes back to that conflict between Jake and Nog and the Screans, which is like, if the Screans were more chaotic good instead of like chaotic bad, the ending I think would would have resonated far far more deeply. Yeah, it's sort of a weird episode because it kind of like presents itself as like a metaphor for immigration, where. A group of people who, you know, want to make a better life for themselves by moving into territory that they are not traditionally occupying is a is a problem that every all the characters have to grapple with. Except for by introducing Draylon to to the equation, they kind of make that not what it's like like it it ceases to be it ceases to work as a metaphor for right. immigration in our time when that is when that's there like well they could move to Bajor, but they could also just move to this other planet which nobody would mind like yeah the draylon 2 kneecaps uh the perfect metaphor of the yeah, show but then but then like the other thing it could have been, which is that they are like mirror Bajorans where they have been told that their destiny is to live on Bajor. And I don't think that quite works either because they don't like there's like she has like a bad emotional reaction to being told that it's not going to work out. But then it's just like, OK, well, I guess we'll go to the other place. You know, it's not it's not move to Bajor or or they're like all three million of them are going to be dissatisfied forever you know like they get over that pretty quickly yeah i mean it's basically like hey not this like we know you think this is your promised land but uh you're not welcome to it so fuck off oh oh really oh cool okay all right bye bye that <laughs> you know? that part that pivot was was in the last three minutes like we get the yeah. decision at the panel we get the single brass instrument of denied asylum and then, yeah. and then we get uh, Henique totally big-dogging Kira and, and calling Bajorans frightened and suspicious before leaving. And that scene made me feel like, fuck you, Henique. Like, <laughs> you didn't try at all. You were basically a jerk the whole time. Don't come to my porch trying to, to sell me magazines and then be a dick about me not wanting to buy your fucking magazines. Like... <laughs> Are you speaking from experience, Adam? That was a that was like a terrible comparison, but like the Bajorans could have handled this more delicately. But I think Hanik is totally out of line with with her like guilt tripping Kira over this. Yeah, and, but like to her credit, Kira is a feeling person, and she felt bad about it. More, more, more. 
time. The other like thing that happens toward the end of this episode is that Tumac and a couple of his buddies, I guess presumably the ones that were in the rumble with Jake and Nog, steal a ship and light out for Bajor and actually get in a dogfight that is represented by dots on a screen. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like... This is some old school this, jaking right here. Yeah, like uh, Jake Sisko safe on the station, but Shuttlecraft's getting jaked. Right. And uh, getting, in, getting in fights, and uh, there's a real tense scene where, you know, Hanik is trying to talk him out of going to Bajor and... You know, Kira is on the radio trying to get him back, and Cisco is radioing up the the military on Bajor and saying like, "This is a kid. He's just like, he's just lost his way. Don't please don't shoot his ship down." And uh, it turns out that the ship was so was so ramshackle that when Tumac fired on the Bajoran defense craft, the uh, the phaser he fired lit his his engine on fire and it exploded. So. uh I mean, I think that that tempers like how mad you can be at Hanik for being a little bit shitty to Kira on the way out because she did just kind of lose her son. But yeah, like the this is a weird bottle episode because it sort of presents itself as this allegory, but it it's not really an allegory for anything. Yeah, because like in the way you're describing... When she goes off on Kira, she's in mourning. She's not necessarily, like, she's lashing out because she's in mourning, but she's arguing for something totally separate from the death of of her son. Yeah. And so that sort of takes the power away from her position. I know, like, I'm with you, Ben. If they cleared off a few of the peripheral conflicts in this story... I think it could be more apt. Like like yeah. it could be a cleaner comparison to to a more contemporary issue with which you know Star Trek loves to do. If it's a show about immigration and people having misgivings about it and it's like a true to Star Trek story, you have somebody there to speak up for the pretty well-known economic principle that like labor entering a market is generally very good for markets. Mm-hmm. And while, like, racists don't like that fact, it's true. Mm-hmm. And that labor entering a market tends to lead to more prosperity, both for the people that were already there and also for the people that are coming. Right. And that would have been, like, a perspective I would have liked to see, you know, if if their plan was a little different and they were talking about moving to Bajor and, like, integrating into the population, like... um you know, I think it would be very easy to see both sides of the argument. Like, this could be really good for Bajor to have, like, three million people that are, like, ready to get to work and ready to, like, work on the the abused farmland that the Cardassians left behind. But also Bajorans feeling like, hey, like, we just, you know, we're just getting up on our feet and we kind of already are known for being kind of racist to outsiders and, like, don't necessarily want to invite new aliens to inhabit our home world with us like that's a conflict that happens all over the place all the time yeah it sure is hmm did you like the episode uh all that said i did kind of like the episode like i don't think it works as a an allegory for anything and i don't really think it's about a contemporary issue even if it 
kind of wanted to be, but I liked the characters and I liked the, I mean, it, there's a lot going on in the episode and it's fun to see like both the high minded diplomatic stuff that's going on with the government and Cisco and Hanik, mm-hmm. but then also seeing the mirror of that happening, like down where the regular people hang out with Jake and Nog and, you know, Quark being pissed off that it's affecting his bottom line that these people aren't paying for drinks and stuff like right. uh that part of it was uh was was great and uh yeah it definitely held my interest i thought it was a uh, on on balance a pretty good episode maybe could have used another draft on the script though yeah i mean we really laid into this episode quite a bit with how we would have done it differently yeah. And I think that's a satisfying exercise. Like that in a weird way makes me like the episode wherein whereas, you know, if I were just watching this by myself and I turned off the TV and then went and did something else, I might say that I didn't. So yeah. I think the exercise of the show has made the episode better than maybe it would be in a vacuum. Now, the homeowners want a nice, dead sound environment in this room. Rather than spraying popcorn on the ceiling, we're bringing in a screen to stand in the corner and absorb all the sound. For the construction of a recording studio, I like to set up (laughs) a row of five to six screens. (laughs) I'll find the largest screen and put him in the corner. That way, I get a nice bass trap effect. (laughs) And my voice will create... That awful slapback sound. The high coefficient of surface area will allow sounds to dissipate in a natural way with low amounts of refab. You want to see if we have any P1s, Ben? Let's do it, Adam. Priority one message from Starfleet coming in on secured channel. Need a supplemental income. Supplemental income? Supplemental. Supplemental. Yeah, it's extra. But the interest alone could be enough to buy this ship. All right, Adam, our first... Priority one message here is of a personal nature. It is from viewers for the ethical treatment of poorly written Star Trek women. Mm. And it is to our benevolent podcast overlords, Ben and Adam. Boy. Is it possible for you to be both on the board of ETPWSTW and also a podcast overlord, or is that a conflict of interest? I don't know, man. I I never thought of myself as an overlord, so yeah. or a board member for that matter. Yeah. It goes like this. Devoted military spouse. Educator who stands up to religious extremists. Woman who has to, for some reason, still replicate all family dinners. Wife of man with death wish. Solid dick joke maker. We know Keiko is a terrible shrew of a wife who Miles hates. But what this presupposes is maybe she's not? Hate the pot, not the plant. Hashtag A.O. Keiko. <laughs> A.O. Keiko. Man. You know what? I'm convinced. I am too. I I think that uh, like we had a drop that we used a couple of times for uh, episodes in which Keiko appears that I think uh, came from the right place but had the wrong, like, but read wrong, which was uh, the, the Wicked Witch of the West theme. And I think I made that drop, and I think I was thinking of it not as Keiko is a witch, but, like, here comes a bad story. But, uh, yeah, like, I totally see why the uh, Keiko is a witch thing was what people were getting from it. Uh, Yeah, like, I think that, generally speaking, my concern with Keiko showing up in an episode is that both 
unhealthy marriage practice is modeled, and also the episodes don't tend to be that great. Mm. You know what I mean? Well, I mean... But that's definitely a pot issue, not the plant. We don't have to relitigate the drop. But I'm, no, I'm not trying to relitigate it. I'm just, you know, I felt bad. I never th- thought of it that way when when I was doing it, and then some people uh, spoke up about it, and I realized that yeah, like that is totally the way that that probably reads to most people, and that's not what I'm trying to put out there. So right, yeah, like we're, that's not what we're writing for. We're not writing for fuck Keiko. We're writing for fuck bad stories that Keiko is often. A harbinger of. And that's exactly what uh, V for the ETPWSTW is all about. And uh, <laughs> yeah. I think I, I, I count myself among them. I, I think AO a- Keiko is the right thing. Yeah, we're, we're both dues paying members of V E T O P W T S T W. I'm E T P W S T W, and I vote. <laughs> Uh, do we have any more priority one messages, Adam? Ben, our second priority one message is for Glurb. At least... I didn't know that the priority one message music went on this long. It's for Glurb. At least I think that's your name. You're the guy that stops by from time to time to fuck Raz. <laughs> you might have guessed it, Ben. This message is from Plavim. The message goes our like this. Our old friend Plavim. It has been so long. Message goes like this. Well, we can all agree that Raz is a terrible person <laughs> in all ways. <laughs> <laughs> FMK, Plavim, Raz, Glurb. I was serious about my offer. <laughs> I mean, I don't... I mean, are we to play FMK with Plavim, Raz, and Glurb? I, look, I'm going to say this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be the Switzerland of, of Raz and Plavim. Uh-huh. I think that's... I think if you're smart, if you're a smart business person that I try to be, that I hope you are, uh, we're not going to kill the golden goose... The golden gooses of Raz and Plavim warfare uh, via yeah. P1. So I will just say, uh, if you're a viewer with a with a horse in this race, uh, you can play FMK with Plavim, Raz, and Glurb on your own time or on social media. Yeah, who's Glurb though? Well, I think I think we know from the message that Glurb is the person who's fucking Raz. <laughs> I mean, were you listening to the message, Ben? Yeah, but is it is it a new a new name for a person that we've already encountered, or is this a, like a new challenger has entered the ring? Glurb's the Rasfucker. I don't need yeah. to know any more than that. So Glurb is firmly Team Plavim, is what you're saying? Yeah, that's what I'm contextually getting from this message. Man, well, I remained perplexed and delighted. <laughs> well, uh, messages of delight, perplexion. Or anything in between can be uh, can be created over at maximumfun.org/jumbotron, where personal messages are one hundred dollars and commercial messages are two hundred dollars. They are, as ever, a great way to help with the ongoing production of this program. Sure are. Boy, do I love a microdose gummy from Lumi Labs. I'm, uh, I'm running low, so I'm going to head over to microdose.com pretty soon and put in another order. Microdosing is a technique I use to steer my mentals in a preferred direction several times a week. 
And uh, I just love it because you can really predict what is going to happen and to what degree it is going to happen because these are very low-dose cannabis gummies that uh, give you an entry-level dose that help you feel just the right amount of good. And they've been super loyal as sponsors to Greatest Trek and Greatest Gen, so I hope you will give them a try. Get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code SCARVES. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code is SCARVES for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code SCARVES. You might have heard us talk about Squarespace before and you're thinking, what do I need a website for? I already have a bunch of profiles across the different social medias. But isn't it time you had a place online that wasn't owned by a social media company? How about you take control of your online identity with a website of your own? For that, there's Squarespace. With Squarespace, you can buy a URL and build a customized website with your name, and not a giant social media company's name, with your name attached and a bunch of numbers at the end. With Squarespace, you can have a place on the internet personalized to your aesthetic that lets you tell people about who you are instead of an algorithm. And the best part is, you don't have to be an experienced designer or a web page creator to make something great because Squarespace is always there for you with their award-winning 24 by 7 customer support. Don't settle for being another company's product. Be your own product with a website that's all you with Squarespace. Go to squarespace.com for a free trial and when you're ready to launch, use the offer code SCARVES to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com. The code is SCARVES. Think it. Dream it. Make it with Squarespace. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing and wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org newsletter so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! Most of the plants humans eat are technically grass. Most of the asphalt we drive on is almost a liquid. The formula of WD-40 is San Diego's greatest secret. Zippers were invented by a Swedish immigrant love story. On the podcast Secretly Incredibly Fascinating, we explore this type of amazing stuff. Stuff about ordinary topics like cabbage and batteries and socks. Topics you'd never expect to be the title of the podcast. Secretly Incredibly Fascinating. Find us by searching for the word secretly in your podcast app. And at MaximumFun.org. Hey, Adam. What's that, Ben? Did you find yourself a drunk Shimoda? Drunk Shimoda! My Shimoda is going to be quark for this episode because if you're if you're basing your Shimoda on on like efficiency, 
<laughs> like in a in a miles per gallon kind of way. If there's a like Shimoda per minute ratio, <laughs> Quark is barely in this episode. But when he is, he's either growling at Tumac or he's playing a fun game of of like get Nog out of jail in front of Odo <laughs> where he is like playing really big in that yeah. scene. Like I, I really only actually he's in another scene in the bar where he's bitching about uh, both the music and about the uh, cleaning up skin flakes with a bar rag. But like in every scene, he's always really interesting and really funny. And uh, yeah. like, I think, I think there are probably many choices for Shimoda's in this set, but uh, Quark has mine. What about you, Ben? I give mine to Nog. He just, to me, seemed like, like actually, from a standpoint of actually having fun, like that Nog is who is doing that. Like he is, he is doing pranks. He's doing bits. He's uh, he's running around, getting into all kinds of trouble, and uh, he's wearing the most delightful clothing. So hmm. Nog was my Shimoda. What do we have coming up on the next episode? Well, if you give me a second, I'll find out. Hurry! Well, the next episode, Adam, is season two, episode 11, Rivals. Quark feels threatened when a charming swindler arrives on Deep Space Nine and opens a competing bar, or as uh, our friends uh, at the Netflix video streaming corporation have it, over a drink at Quark's, a middle-aged alien widow tells an alien man how she plans to invest her life savings in a large mining concession. That's, that's great. <laughs> I just noticed this, and I'm not sure if it holds any water, but it seems like DS9 does a lot of one-word episode titles where <laughs> uh, TNG did a lot of of two, three, and and like... Full on, yeah. like lengthy title episodes. titles on TNG. Yeah, what do you make of that? Anything? I don't know. Yeah, but didn't like toward the end of TNG. I feel like they got shorter. Like mesh. <laughs> <laughs> they they really stopped giving a shit by then about the show <laughs> titles. <laughs> but like, uh, I don't think it should. It would surprise anyone to know that you and I give a lot of thought to what the show titles are going to be for our own show, and I wonder. How much is given uh, to the titles yeah. of our of our favorite television program here? I'll I'll give a fun fact. On an average episode that I edit, there might be two or three ding sound effects that I have potted down because I found one later in the episode that I like more. Oh, I like that. So uh, it's still in the timeline, but I just don't bother cutting it out. I just uh, I just lower the volume to zero. You know, I like your idea of like auditioning them against each other. What I end up doing is like carrying the ding over like forward as I edit, yeah. and I almost never go back for one. If it's either better or it's not. <laughs> so yeah, there's I a think little I behind to, like, the pod re- there. Remind myself what the ding was, you know. <laughs> well, anyways. Well, we better see if we're going to do this episode in a in a special way, Ben. We're uh, currently on square 31, and just a couple squares away, we have a measure of a man and a quark's bar. Oh, boy. And I, I believe it's probably your turn to roll the dice. You're required to learn as you play. Roll. Okay, I'll roll them. I rolled a three, Adam. Oh, yeah! 
and that is a measure of a man episode. What does that mean? We have to measure our dicks? I like this concept. So measure of a man is we flip a coin and vehemently argue the pro-con of an episode. Oh, wow. <laughs> I really dig this idea. So if I'm interpreting this gamification correctly, in the beginning, before we start the recap, we'll flip a coin and it will be yeah. decided who is riding for the episode being good or the episode <laughs> being bad. Okay. Wow. Looking forward to that. That's a, that's like a whole new thing. Here's what I'll say about this. I think for most episodes, you could make a very strong case either way about the yeah. goodness of an ep or the, or the relative poorness of an ep. And mm-hmm. I'm excited to, uh, to have that sort of programmed in for this one. It'll be like the uh, even Stephen, you know, Stephen Colbert versus Steve Carell yeah. argument episode. Good call. Yeah. <laughs> Well, how do we end the show? We end the show by thanking our legions of listeners who go to MaximumFun.org slash donate and becoming true friends of DeSoto. We had a great Max Fun drive, and uh, we really appreciate everybody who did it then. And if you want to get that sweet bonus content by doing it now, you can. That's right. Uh, we also want to thank Dark Materia for our original theme song and Adam Ragusia, who has customized it and uh, made all kinds of new and great theme music for us. He's chopped and screwed it, right? Yeah, chopped it, screwed it, flipped it, smacked it, rubbed it down. And we want to direct people to the Greatest Gen hashtag on Twitter. And uh, there's a Greatest Gen subreddit. There's also a Greatest Gen Facebook group. Those are all awesome and lively places to joke around with positive non-assholes on the internet. And uh, that's pretty cool, because where else does that exist? Very few places. Not on these mics, that's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) The one thing I've learned from our uh, social media uh, groups is is, uh, how much better those people are than me. (laughs) (laughs) They are better than you, Adam. Uh, Also better than you are the people at MaximumFun.org who uh, help us every week put these episodes together. We really appreciate all of their support. That all being said, we'll be back at you next time with another great episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine and an episode of The Greatest Generation Deep Space Nine that I will either love or hate, depending (laughs) on the flip of a coin. Yeah, this will be fun. What's her name? God damn it, I can't remember any of these fucking characters' names. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.